0: Well, good morning. Uh, today we're going to be reading out of Second Kings 6. Um, join me as we hear from from God in his word. Uh, starting in verse 8. <clears throat> now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he consult, counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be, a, be my camp. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Aramans are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. (laughs) Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Then the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in the bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told to him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. And he sent horses and chariots and a heavy military force there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Then the attendant of the man of God arose early and went out. And behold, a military force with horses and chariots was all around the city. And his young man said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Yahweh, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And they came down to him, and Elisha prayed to Yahweh and said, strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the way. And this is not the city. Walk after me, and I will walk you over to the man whom you seek. And he walked them over to Samaria. Now it happened, when they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, to, said O Yahweh, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So Yahweh opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold... They were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he said, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those who have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and walk back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the marauding bands of Armians did not come again into the land of Israel. Well, this morning we'll be looking from
1: God's word in Second Kings chapter six, verses eight through twenty-three, as Brandon had previously read, and we'll be focusing on seeing the unseen this morning and What I hope to accomplish in part this morning is to get you to see and understand that there is an unseen world all about us. And this will certainly play in as John continues in his exposition of the book of Ephesians when we get to chapter 6, dealing with spiritual warfare. And also this will be a precursor to the adult Sunday school that I'm planning on starting in the month of November, uh, dealing with the topic of angelology, which is one of the ten major divisions of systematic theology, uh, looking at the role of angels, who they are, what they do, both the elect angels and the fallen angels. This is something I believe that the evangelical or Reformed Church at large has failed to fully explore because of certainly abuses, Throughout church history of some of the sensationalism associated with that topic. But I want us to look exactly, you know, what does the Bible say? And how do we understand these spiritual beings that are non-human, these interdimensional beings, if you will, and the fact that they genuinely exist? They're not some fantasy or figment of our imagination or some mythology. Well, for those that have read the classic work of Holiness by J.C. Ryle, and if you haven't read it, I highly recommend that book. In the final chapter is entitled Christ is All. And that book by Ryle is an excellent exposition of the all-sufficiency that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of the problems that we currently face in evangelical Christianity in our current day is You know, we've often failed to direct one another and God's people to their full resources that we have in our all-sufficient Christ. You know, believers are facing difficulties and trials and tribulations and hardships and sufferings in our life. And some of you are experiencing that this morning. And oftentimes, we're not telling one another, you know, Jesus Christ is sufficient. Do we really believe that? He's, he's sufficient for every real need and problem that we experience in this life. And rather, the church at large, if, you know, they're directing their people into all sorts of worldly pragmatism, a variety of different programs, 12 step methods, and medications, where Christ is is only secondary at at best often. And John MacArthur makes the same point in his excellent book, Our Sufficiency in Christ. And He writes, "A, A widespread lack of confidence in Christ's sufficiency is threatening the contemporary church. Too many Christians have acquiesced to the notion that our riches in Christ, including Scripture, prayer the indwelling holy spirit and all the other spiritual resources we find in christ simply are just not adequate to meet people's needs entire churches are committed to programs built on the presupposition that the apostles teaching fellowship the breaking of bread and prayer according to acts chapter 2 verses 42 that's not a full enough agenda for the church today well this morning i want to Take the time to look at an incident in the life of Elijah in which the prophet found himself suddenly surrounded by a foreign army that intended to take him captive. You know, Elisha's servant went out one morning and discovered that the assembled soldiers with their horses and chariots. And he comes back inside and he's crying (laughs) alas. What are we going to (laughs) do? And while most of us certainly have never walked out our front doors in the morning to confront someone intent on doing us harm and taking us captive, but I think we all know what it's like to be suddenly confronted with problems and situations and circumstances beyond our control. And perhaps we can all relate to that servant's panic in the midst of the apparent crisis in which he faced. You know, then we see that suddenly the servant beheld the unseen spiritual world that Elisha already saw it. And the mountains was full of horses and chariots of fire, and Elisha asked God to strike the opposing soldiers blind, and then he led them south to the capital city located 12 miles away where they were then found themselves surrounded by Israel's army. You know, and again, according to the text, Elisha asked Yahweh to restore their sight, and then... Elisha directed the Israelite king to feed the foreign army and give them drink and then send them on their way. And for a while, we're told that the Syrian army did not confront Israel. And just a little bit is a little bit of historical background. I, I found interesting as I, I studied in this passage and as Brandon read, you saw the word Aram, which is really modern day Syria. You know, it was located up to the north and east, and depending on your translations it might say Syria or Aram. Another interesting thing is the impact that those people had in that area against the Syrians. Uh their language had affected that down in Samaria, and that's why we're told where Jesus spoke Aramaic. Well that's where it comes from, Iran. Just like, you know, for another equivalence of modern day to get an idea, uh modern day Iran is Persia. And the people from Iran are Persians, they're not Arabs. And we sometimes, you know, having a historical understanding and context helps us to get a grasp of what's going on. But in this historical account, it's got two main themes that I want us to focus on. First is the all-sufficiency of God to meet our needs in any situation that he sovereignly places us And the second thing I want us to see this morning is that prayer is our means of access to our all-sufficient God. And if you're anything like me, we all know that probably our prayer lives could improve, that we're sometimes negligent in that area. And I want to encourage you this morning and exhort you in these areas. And since God, Yahweh, is our all-sufficient resource, believers should pray and not panic when we find ourselves facing serious trials and difficult circumstances in this life. And all of us have probably been at points where we feel overwhelmed and maybe even panic. You know, the contemporary term of having a panic attack, seeming overwhelmed, things outside your, your control. But I want to encourage you that we can turn to our all-sufficient God. And he is our all-sufficient resources in times of trials and tribulations that we're going to face. And the limitlessness of God's knowledge, his power, his sovereignty, that is his total control over everything, dominates this account as recorded in Second Kings chapter six. And it's interesting to note that of all the major characters in this account, no one except Elisha is mentioned by name, not the kings or Elisha's servants. Even Elisha is called three times in this span of Scripture the man of God in verses 6, verse, uh, excuse me, verses 9, 10, and 15. And one commentator made the point that says that, you know, maybe this suggests to the readers today that we should focus primarily on the Lord, on Yahweh, in this passage. When we focus on God, and we keep our eyes there we the author and finisher the perfecter of our faith we're going to learn three things that we can take away this morning in relation to whatever trial whatever circumstances you're going through this morning if you will apply the truth of God's word and work hard by the grace of God of discipling yourself under godliness of the renewing of the mind I think you'll find on it'll take a different perspective it, it no promise it's going to be easy, but you can deal with it in a Christ-like manner because, one, our God is omniscient. Now, what does that mean? He knows all things. Everything that has happened, everything that will happen. He's planned it all. He is the Almighty. He possesses all wisdom, all knowledge. God knew what the Syrian king was planning to do, and He revealed it to Elijah, who in turn told what? The king of Israel. And what is happening here in the context, the scripture had told us that Syria, the king of Syria, is at war with Israel. And his name was Ben Hadad, the Syrian king. Well, he's trying to plan his military strategy and he's setting up posts, if you will, and encampments, you know, and trying to. Bring this up to modern-day terminology so you could understand, get a picture. He's trying to set up forward operating bases out there, (laughs) you know, to house and garrison his troops in order to launch attacks on Israel. And his officers come to him and tell him, Elisha? You know, he even tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. (laughs) Because the Syrian king can't figure out, okay, they're not going here. We can't get them here. What's going on? He's thinking to himself, there's got to be a mole. (laughs) Somebody's leaking this information. There's a double agent on the inside. Who is it, officers? Well, in verse 12, he's informed the king of Israel seems to even know what you're talking about in private. In your bedroom. Well, how in the world did that happen? Because it took the intelligence agencies of today's world more than 2,500 years after this to be able to bug a room in order to secretly listen through deception and record confidential conversations that were held in private. And this is goes to show, when you look at it in historical context, our God, Yahweh, is infinitely more effective and powerful than our CIA, infinitely more powerful than the British MI6, infinitely more powerful and knowledgeable than Israeli Mossad. Because according to the Scripture in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, God knows every thought and motive of every human heart. And at one point, that's terrifying. When you know your own thoughts and some of the things you can focus on. On the other hand, it's quite comforting to the Lord's people that nothing is beyond God's knowledge. Nothing catches him off guard. That is, nothing is hidden from him. He knows all. Well, the Syrian king thought that he would just simply, you know, I'm going to deploy some military troops and I'm going to take Elisha captive. You know, he's obviously their intel guy. We need to get something here, what's going on. He, he didn't consider or realize that Elisha would know those plans in advance. Elisha could have simply have hidden himself if that were the case, if that's what God... But he knew that God wanted to teach that Syrian king and the king of Israel some lessons about the reality and power of the true and only living God. Again, our God knows everything, and everything that will be or has been or will be in the future. We're we're foolish to think that we can hide anything from Him. And again, He even knows all our secret thoughts and intentions, let alone the words and the deeds that we do in this life. But God in His grace and His mercy towards sinners, He's given us His word. And His Word reveals to us all we need to know in order to respond to life's problems in a Christ-like way for the glory and honor of our Lord. And the Scripture says we can go to our God for the wisdom that we need when we lack it. And it's in that context of the trials, in the trials of life, that James, in chapter 1, verse 5, says, "...but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God." Who gives to all men generously and without reproach. And it will be given to them if we would simply ask in prayer. But oftentimes we just don't realize the resources we have. Or sometimes we fail to see the power and might of our God. To think that he can really do something for me today. Well, not only is God omniscient, we're told, but he's, he's also omnipotent. That is, he not only has all knowledge and knows everything to solve our problems, but he he has the unlimited power to overcome the biggest problems that you can ever encounter. You know, as you think of your problems, and I know many of you are facing terrible things. Is your problem as big as a hostile foreign army that's trying to capture you? And who knows what? You know, King David reminds us in Psalm 34 and verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Do we believe that? Do we live our lives in light of that truth? Again, are these angels, and you'll find these angels all the way from Genesis to Revelation. How do we understand that? What is their job? What are they doing? King David, the angel of the Lord, encamps around those who fear him and rescues him. Therefore, though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. And how many of us face fear often daily, not living by faith, but living by our feelings and the way we interpret our circumstances. When we know the Word of God tells us that our God's all-powerful, He knows everything. You know, it wasn't too difficult for God to strike that army blind in response to Elisha's prayer. And we've got to remember, whatever you're going through, there is no man, and whatever happens in this world, as bad as it seems to get, or nation, or anything, anything so powerful that our God cannot easily bring him or it to nothing. And that that means that God is able to handle any problems you have. Whatever you're experiencing today or what might happen tomorrow, God is fully capable of dealing with it. No matter how big and overwhelming it appears to you. And I know that things seem insurmountable. Is there any hope? God, how can you possibly deal with this? And I chuckle every time I read the account. There was a woman who came to a well-known Bible teacher by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. And she asked, uh, Dr. Morgan, uh, do you think we should pray about little things or are just about big problems? <laughs> and we think like that. Oh, that's, that's too small. Or too big for God. And Dr. Morgan replied in his formal British manner, and I wish Sam could read this quote to give us that British flair. But he said, Madam, can you think of anything in your life that is big to God? Think about that. Can you think of anything in your life that's big to God? (laughs) The Almighty? The Omniscient? The Omnipotent? He spoke the entire universe and everything that you behold into existence to the power of His Word. Do you think anything in your life is bigger than what God can handle? But we often live like that in reality. Nothing is too difficult for him, according to Jeremiah chapter thirty-two. But you might be sitting out this morning and you're, you're thinking, that's nice. It's a nice little Bible story. I I remember hearing that in Sunday school years ago when I was a child. But that didn't seem to work for me. That's not how my life is. If you know, if only I could say a. a a short prayer, and all my problems were just instantly solved, just like those soldiers were struck blind at the time. I wish I could do that. And that leads to the third thing we see here concerning our all-sufficient God. And that is that our God sovereignly protects His own according to His will. You know, if you are part of the redeemed of God trusting in Christ alone for salvation and forgiveness of sins. You can trust Him to protect you until the moment that He calls you to be, be home with Him or He returns for His people. And as Psalm 91, 11 promises, He will give His angels, again angels charged concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. The Lord is stronger than the more mighty, that's why I always like that name of God, the Almighty. There's nothing more powerful. He's, he's stronger than your most powerful enemy. He's protecting us even when we're not even aware of it. And that's the point here. So we need to take it off the pages that it's printed on, the inspired Word of God. And we need to put this into our own minds and thinking so that when situations happen to us, we can respond like Elijah, not the servant. You know, that servant, Elisha's servant, he probably, as far as we know, he went to sleep that night peacefully (laughs) because the text says that the army came during the middle of the night. He didn't know when he went to sleep that the hostile forces were surrounding him at that time. And then when he gets up in the morning and he and he sees him, he, he panics. What are we going to do? But God's protection, this is the, the point. God's protection was there even though he couldn't see it. And we've got to learn to get beyond living our lives as the things we can just see and touch and feel and understand and rationalize. That God's bigger than that. There is a whole unseen universe of activity going on all around us all the time. You know, it's just like a dog whistle. Most of us cannot hear that frequency. But a dog can hear it. It means the frequency is still there. There are certain spectrums of light that we cannot see. It doesn't mean that they're not there. We just can't see them. And that's the thing with Elisha's servant. They were there. He just couldn't see them. He did not have eyes to see But you you might still be thinking, you know, that's just great when all things work out as nicely as it did for Elijah. But, hey, what about when God's people go through terrible trials and even death? I've read Fox's book of martyrs. What about them? People pulled apart by horses, people sawn in two, people hanged, people burned. Excruciating deaths. What about them? Where's God then? And we all know of some godly people that suffer for years or die through painful disease or persecution that's going on today in our world, even though we're often ignorant of, of Christians being persecuted for the faith. Where's God's protection? Where is this Almighty God? You know, the Lord provides us with what appears to us to be a minor detail in the text that we might easily overlook if we don't pay close attention. Did you notice in verse 13 where Elisha was when his army surrounded him? He was in Dothan. And you say, well, okay, what does that mean? And if you're like me, you have a tendency just to read that and move, go on. Well, God doesn't waste words. <laughs> There's a reason for it. And it seems like more than a simple coincidence that this is the town that's mentioned only one other time in the Bible. And that's the town where Joseph found his brothers when his father had sent him out to find out where they were and what they were doing back in Genesis chapter 37. You remember the story how Joseph had not been able to find his brothers. And as he's wandering a field, a man said, they'd gone to Dothan. And when Joseph arrived there, you remember what happens. They threw him in a pit. They were jealous of him. You know, they are going to leave him for dead. Kill him off. But then a caravan, an Egyptian caravan of slave traders comes by and, well, we might as well profit from him rather than just let him die, so we'll just sell him off as a slave to the Egyptians. So instead they sold him into slavery. And you know the historical account from Scripture and you know, Joseph spent some years as a slave and a prisoner. But then you also know that God sovereignly, who knows all things and has all power, he's got complete power over the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Israel, Putin, Xi in China. <laughs> Nothing's going to thwart his purposes and his plans. They're going to be carried out in the exact detail that he's predetermined. Well, God finally appointed Joseph over all of Egypt under Pharaoh. Did you remember the account where the falsely accused of sexual assault and thrown in prison for a couple of years? And He sat in a pit in Dothan. He traveled in chains to Egypt. Sat in the chains in the Egyptian dungeon. And as far as we know, according to the account of Scripture, he never had a vision of chariots of fire surrounding him. Where were the angels and chariots when Joseph was suffering? Where are they when you are suffering? But here's the point, and this is what I try to get across in discipleship and counseling with people. that are going through hard times. We're not minimizing the difficulties of this life because we, we live in a Genesis 3 sin-cursed world. We're sinned against, we sin against others. And that sin has consequences. And Joseph later looked back over those years of trials, and they weren't pleasant, I'm I'm certain of that. Falsely accused. But when he came in contact with his brothers again, and they finally recognized who he was, you've got to remember, he had the power to kill them, to execute them. And here's the response. And for anyone who's been terribly sinned against and victimized in a true sense, try to develop this mindset and way of thinking, the renewing of the mind, to think biblically, to have the mind of Christ. And to behold God is something bigger than what you can understand in the circumstances of your life and how they all play out. And this is the response that I pray that each of us could develop in our own lives in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, he tells his brothers. But God meant it for good. And it didn't look good sitting there in that dungeon. It didn't look good in the chains being sold into slavery. And your life might not look good this morning. but God meant all that that occurred to me for good. To bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And you and I, we have no idea what God's going to bring from the circumstances of our life this morning. Even though Joseph didn't see any angels that were told, even though he went through years of terrible conditions, He knew that God was sovereignly directing all his circumstances. He had hope. He had faith. He had trust in Yahweh. He would do the right thing. He would give him grace to persevere day by day. And even though you and I might not get a vision of God's angels surrounding us in our time of need, they're there. That's the truth regardless. They are there. And even if you somehow end up spending years in a dungeon, our sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God has not abandoned you. Jesus said, I will never leave or forsake you. I'll be with you until the ends of the age. And this is from the character of a God, the Scripture says, that cannot lie. (laughs) This is great encouragement to the heart of a believer this morning, to believe it, not just say it, But have it as part hidden in your heart, in your inner man. I know this to be true. Even at times I do struggle and I have doubts and I have questions. But I can go to God's Word, I can go to one another in the body of Christ and be encouraged. This is the truth, regardless of how you feel or how it looks. You know, Elisha was safe because he was with his master. And even so, we are safe because we are identified in with union with our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been put into Christ. We've been transferred from that kingdom of darkness by God's sovereign power into this kingdom of everlasting light. The truth has been revealed. The truth has set us free. We have all we need in Christ. He is our all in all. I'm preaching to myself this morning. I need to hear that. Because oftentimes I fail day to day. God knows the number of hairs on our head. A sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from His divine will. And our days are numbered. There's no reason for us to live in fear. That's why we can be bold. We can be strong. We can be mighty. And we can be courageous because our God is for us. He will conquer every enemy that needs to be conquered. Nothing shall befall us except that which he allows. And even that which he allows is is for the good of his people and his glory. And remember this as we oftentimes fear for our bodily safety. And Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's sobering. And the question becomes this morning, how can I not panic when trials come? Our second main point is prayer is the way to have peace, not panic when trials appear. Prayer is our means of access to our all-sufficient Savior. John said something in a message a few months ago that really stuck with me that I hadn't thought about. Because I often thought, when we get to heaven, into the eternal state, glory, and recreated heavens and earth, (laughs) man, the line is going to be so long to see Jesus, how is he even going to have time? (laughs) I mean, think about it, and that's my way of thinking. But I sit there and I look at the character of God in the things of even science and physics and quantum mechanics. and He is so immense and can do so many things, even compared to AI and quantum computing. And John said at one point, it's going to be like, because of God's immensity and his all-knowing and his power, it's going to be like you're an only child. And I never thought about that. And again, I don't know, but the scripture says... Whatever we can come up with in our finite humanness, the eternal state is going to be so much more than you can even begin to comprehend. But I'm thinking right now, you've got access to the Almighty through prayer. Come boldly before the throne of grace because of what Christ has done. We're not kept back. Draw close to your Father. Anytime, you don't have to take a number and wait. Prayers are means of access to our all sufficient Savior. And as Paul wrote from prison, he's in prison. Remember Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. What did he say there? Be anxious for nothing. Worry, anxiety, fear. Has anyone been anxious for something in the last 24 hours, last week? We all have, I think. We're told right here that's that's an imperative, a command. Be anxious; it's a sin. It's one of those respectable sins. We don't take it seriously, but all sin is to be taken seriously. There's not degrees of sin like a class A misdemeanor sin. One sin, all the fallen short of the glory of God, is enough to condemn you apart from the Almighty and the Living God forever, because you've transgressed His holy law and offended His character. We think of sin too lightly. It's not, oh, that's not a serious matter. Yes, it is, because God says it is. We're not the ones that determine this. We're to obey our sovereign. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. By prayer. And supplications with thanksgiving, giving thanks. It's hard to give thanks for difficult circumstances. But with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And hear what it says, right out of God's word: "In the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehensions of all your human understanding, the peace of God shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." That's how you don't panic. Even an initial response could be one of panic. Turn to God immediately. Recognized by God's grace to put off. I'm putting off the fear and the panic. I'm going to put on trust and faith by God's grace. And I'm going to pray to my Father who knows all things. He will preserve me if that's His will. What did Job say? Even though He slays me, I'm going to trust Him. That's living faith. (laughs) You know, major trials can come so... Suddenly, we don't know what the next moment holds. And the scripture says, you know, to focus on today, you don't know what tomorrow's got enough of its own troubles. But our lives can change in a text, an email, a phone call, a knock on the door. You don't know. You know, I, I still remember Neil Trowbridge leaving his house. Going, driving himself to the doctor that morning <laughs> and goes and has a massive heart attack in the doctor's office. And as Gwen said, she had no idea that would be the last time I saw him when he walked out that door, the last time I see him on this earth. You don't know. <laughs> you know, Elisha's servant went to sleep peacefully with no thought of being surrounded by a menacing army. The next morning he wakes up, he sees the army and No doubt thought, man, this is it. I could die today. It's over. Life is just that uncertain to us. It's not to our God. That's why it's foolish to live for this life only. As if there were no eternity. You know, the uncertainty of this earthly life should make us live every day in total dependence upon God and trusting Him. But when we pray, it replaces the panic that we often find ourselves in with wisdom, according to God's Word, for dealing with those trials. And as I said before, sometimes when you're in the midst of a trial, All you can see, you can't, you know, the forest for the trees, you can't see anything but the bark of the tree because your nose is pressed up against that tree. That's all you see. And that's why we need the one another's of the local body of Christ to come in and remind us of these things. Because we can panic. We can become anxious. And we need to minister to one another. You know, there's an obvious contrast in this, Passage between the panic of Elisha's servant and the peace that Elisha had. And hopefully, every one of us would want to know how do I get the peace that Elijah has so I don't fall apart when the hard times come? I think Elisha knew how God wanted him to respond in this situation because he had communion with God through prayer. He knew God. And again, as I've, I've looked back over my life and walking with the Lord and I think, you know, I've spent a lot of my time knowing about God, and I've had a lot of good men tell me about God. But did I ever really concentrate on knowing God? (laughs) Facts and figures and verb tenses. Again, there's a place for that. But it means nothing if you do not know God. And as I said before, the 3 o'clock morning, when you're laying there in bed and you're in the panic attack, You'll realize if you know him or you don't. But again, I I think Elisha knew. He knew God. And Elisha's mentor, remember who that was, Elijah, he called down fire from heaven in one case to consume some soldiers who came to take him captive. But Elisha didn't do that here. Did something different on a previous occasion. Elisha, though himself, had cursed in the name of the Lord a bunch of young men who who taunted him, resulting in some bears came out of the woods and killed them. Some she bears. Old Baldy, remember that the young guys were after him. Hey, <laughs> called out that the bears came and ate them up. <laughs> but on this occasion, I think that Elisha knew. Through prayer that God wanted to deal differently with this foreign army in this particular time. And the Syrian king had already seen evidence of the reality of Israel's God. When Elisha had, again, remember, he Elisha had healed Naaman, the, the captain of the army. Remember that account. So he's seen the power of God working. But sometimes even when you see the power of God, you deny the true and living God. And Israel's wicked king, Jehoram, you remember him, he's the son of Ahab. He should have known that Yahweh is the only true God. You know, through Elisha's gracious treatment of those soldiers, remember when they woke up and the king of Israel said, you want me to kill them? And Elisha responded. He didn't respond that way. He said, no, feed them, give them drink. Gracious treatment. You know, and both those kings had further evidence of God's kindness, mercy, and power. Though it's not stated directly, I I do believe that Elisha gained the wisdom to know how to handle the trial the way he did through prayer and knowing God. God spoke to him. You know, our God may not grant us miraculous insight and power, at least when we think we should get it, as he did here with Elijah. But if we are people of prayer and we commune with our God and really knowing him, Again, not knowing just about him, but actually knowing him as a person. And we do that through his word and through prayer. I believe we will have wisdom for dealing with the trials when we face them. And I think there's two warnings that we need to pay attention to when it comes to these things in life. And this is real life. This is not theory. This is not theoretical discussing infralapsarian and superlapsarian or which position you take on those kind of theological debates. As I've said before in all my years now of of doing this by God's grace, I've never had anybody contact me at 2 o'clock in the morning and wanting to know the verb tense of a Hebrew word. It's my son was just killed in a traffic accident. My daughter ran away. It's a real life crisis problem. And how do we deal with that as God's people? And again, I'm not, there's places for the language, there's places for all that stuff. It helps us in our understanding. But if that's all we focus on, we're missing the boat, is what I'm telling you. We are here to minister the Word of God to one another, to encourage and exhort for the glory of Christ and the building up of His body. And we as the people of God have to take sin seriously, our own sin and the sin of others, for the purity and glory of God's body is what he's called us to we have to learn to submit ourselves to one another John's been going through in Ephesians that's difficult because of our pride and our self-focus our unbelief those root sins well there's two warnings first the time to gain such wisdom and understanding of how to respond is before the trials hit you don't want to be in the middle of being shot at and learning how to reload your weapon (laughs) that's not the time to figure it out you're supposed to train hard and we're supposed to train hard, because when the battle starts, we want to be victorious in that. But you have to be well trained. You know, Proverbs one, chapter or verses twenty through thirty three tells us that if we neglect to get wisdom during the calm times, that we will not have it when calamity strikes. And we've all been through that. You know, people warn you, and you discount it, you minimize it, and then something happens, and you say, "Man, I wish I would have listened." <coughs> I wish I would have prepared. I wish I would have seen this coming. Well, the first thing is not only prepare before the battle starts, if you will. The second caution is I've got to act on what we know or it won't do us any good. And how often, and we've seen this, I mean, probably in your own life. You know, the preacher's up here, the teacher or somebody, or you're thinking or you're reading a book. Amen, brother. Amen. Yeah, preach it. But then when it happens to us, or it happens, something happens close to somebody, we seem to have a different set of standards. We're no longer amening. Next thing you know, we're rationalizing a different way of dealing with something other than what God has said. I'm different. <laughs> that doesn't apply to me. It applies to me. Amen. <laughs> We've done it. When it's your own family members. We've got to apply the truth of God's Word. That's part of that progressive sanctification. That's part of making disciples, teaching them to obey, observe all that I've commanded, not just know it. It doesn't do any good to know it except it brings you under more condemnation. you got to do it. But we need God's grace and mercy. He who started the work will complete it. That's part of that new covenant. I'm going to take out the old heart, put a new heart in and I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways because guess what? You can't do it on your own strength and power. You know, Elisha warned the Israelite king of where the Syrians would attack. You know, if the king had been foolish and didn't follow up on it, he could have got overrun. It wouldn't have helped him. God's word warns us where our enemy is going to strike. We shouldn't be caught off guard. It warns us of the consequences of our own sin if we don't repent. The damage it does, the consequences to others involved. It's just not isolated. Sin is, again, a serious matter. We need, by God's grace, to deal with seriously with it. Again, the hymn that we sometimes sing, we think of sin too lightly. Christ died for that sin. But all these warnings of Scripture will only profit us if we obey. If if we learn these warnings, obey them, communing daily with Him through prayer, will... We'll have the wisdom to deal with these trials and our panic will be replaced with peace if we'll just do what the Word of God says. And that's hard. <laughs> but prayer also opens our eyes to the spiritual reality. You know, most of us determine reality by our physical senses. If we can see it, we can hear it, we can feel it, we can smell or taste it, it, it must be real. Anything beyond that's not real. I'm sure that Elijah's servant... Reality was, for him was thousands of soldiers mounted on powerful war horses all out there. I can see them. They could easily wipe us out the whole time. They could wipe out the whole town of, of Dothan before nightfall if they wanted to. But for Elijah, that wasn't the reality. For him, reality was even greater and more powerful army of angels surrounding the city. That's how he lived and those angels were there all along. The problem was Elijah's servant didn't have the eyes to see them. But his not seeing them didn't make them unreal or non-existent. You can't see gravity. You can't see atoms. You can't see the wind even according to the scripture, but you can see what it does. Just look at our trees laying out there in the front yard. You know, Elisha's prayer opened his eyes to see spiritual reality. And spiritual reality is the ultimate reality. We don't live like that, superseding the reality of what we perceive with our physical senses. You know, the Apostle Paul knew how to see the unseen. He was suffering terrible persecution on behalf of the gospel. He was in chains. But he said that his momentary light affliction wasn't the real thing. The real thing was the eternal glory that awaited him in heaven in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's what he was living for. That was what was real. Paul also said, as John's going to be getting to in Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but that's how we live. You know, that's an army out there. We can defeat the Iraqi army. I mean, we can line up a division of tanks. We can wipe them out in 100 hours. But that's not the real battle. Remember when Paul wrote that, he was chained to a very real Roman guard. (laughs) But he said, that isn't where our real struggle takes place. And that's what I'm telling you right now in the world that's going on all around us. This is a spiritual battle we're in the midst of. And the Word of God supports that. We get so focused on the things that we can identify. But this is a spiritual battle. We need to pray pray that that is our weapon. You know, as we're going to see, our real struggle is against the unseen forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And the way we combat these forces is through prayer and the Word of God. Prayer opens our eyes to the spiritual reality. And these are these are things that the Word of God tells us, but we need to live in light of that, that God has these things under control. But prayer makes possible what's humanly impossible as we wrap this up in preparation for the Lord's table. You know, opening opening the servant's eyes to see the angels, closing later reopening the soldiers' eyes were humanly impossible. We can't do that. Elisha's prayer was not for his servant to do what he could already do or, or use some ability he already possessed. His prayer was for God to do something that is humanly impossible. That's a miracle to open his eyes so they could see the angelic forces that protected them. And so often when we pray, we forget that we're asking God to do the humanly impossible. That's what real prayer is. Just think about it. When we pray for the salvation as we do on Wednesday nights for other people, we're not asking God to just help them out a little bit. No. We're asking God to do what's humanly impossible. The sinner himself cannot even do it. Every lost person is spiritually blind. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. Only God can open blind eyes. So this has a direct impact to our understanding of evangelism and how we pray for one another. You know, we may realize this when, when we're praying for someone who has big problems in our way of thinking. You know, we said, man, he, he's a drunkard. He's a drug addict. He's an habitual liar. He's a thief. He's a homosexual. It's going to take a miracle to save him. Yep, it's going to take a miracle to save him, just like it took a miracle to save you. It takes a miracle to save the good, moral person who goes to church every week. Remember that. God must open blind eyes to bring sinners to himself. To behold the beauty of Christ the Savior. And those Syrian soldiers were given an easy mission, and they were confident they could do it. Go down and take a single unarmed man and bring him back to me. Easy. No problem. But through Elisha's prayer, those proud men, strong soldiers, were humbled in the groping and blindness after the prophet. They were completely at Elisha's mercy. Then their eyes were reopened. (laughs) at Elijah's prayer, and they realize they're in a world of hurt as they realize we're surrounded by the Israeli army. In the same way, God must humble the self-confident sinner so that he realizes that he's spiritually powerless to bring himself to life. God must open their eyes to see their desperate condition that they are condemned unless God is gracious to them and shows them mercy. And the Word of God says He will do that to everyone who cries out to Him. He will turn none away who come to Him humbly, contrite and broken in spirit, and turn in faith alone to Christ alone for salvation alone. But look how God dealt with this army that was out to kill his prophet or take him captive. He says, instead of killing them, he says, graciously set before them the banquet. Feed them. Give them drink, then send them home. And the scripture says they didn't wage war for a while. We were once enemies. While we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ Jesus died for us. And he prepared the banquet. We were just talking about that last week. The marriage feast of the Lamb. The beautiful bride that he's working. All the table set up with the riches and blessings of Jesus Christ is freely given to all who receive it. Who come in faith. And though we had deserved his condemnation, God has shown us his abundant mercy and grace in Christ. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's table every week to remind ourselves of that regardless of what happens later today or tomorrow. Yahweh is for us who can be against us and nothing will separate us from His love, the Scripture says. We're eternally secure. No one can pluck them out of my hand, my hand or the Father's hand. All that He has given to me will come to me and I will raise them up at the last day. These are things that ought to thrill and encourage the heart of every believer here this morning and if you're not thrilled, by that truth turn to the Lord this morning